This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch Pail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you the no bull look at the industry of venture capital, and I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner at Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and co-host, the Dean of Due Diligence, Mr. Randy Comisar <laughs> from Kleiner Perkins. Hey, Paul. It's great to be with you as always. Today, we're going into the deep, as in deep tech. Matt Ako, whom we've both known for many years, is a managing partner at DCVC. He's been an early stage investor in everything from Facebook to Zoom to Zynga. But for the better part of 15 years, DCVC has spent its time looking far into the future, investing in verticals like anti-terror and security, climate resilience, computational bio, and space access. Yet not exactly the run-of-the-mill consumer tech investments most VCs like to talk about. <laughs> Clearly, anyone investing in this space needs not only real subject matter expertise, but it's also got to really have a great vision of what the future is going to look like. And oh, by the way, some damn patient LPs. <laughs> yeah. Core tech sometimes falls into the category of a market picker using the Bill Campbell framework, sprinkled in with a bit of predicting the future. The deeper the technology you're investing in, the more confident you need to be in the macros of a given market. That's right, and no one's better than Matt. Matt and I go back decades. In fact, I have Matt to thank for introducing me to some of the legends of Silicon Valley, people like Mark Pincus and Mark Zuckerberg. I can't wait to dig in to all the frontiers that Matt and his partners are pushing. I'll also say my first day in Silicon Valley in 1997 was at Matt Otko's house, and he and I have been friends ever since. He's been a great mentor, and without further ado, Matt Otko, welcome to Lunchpail VC. Thanks, and I don't know if I can live up to that answer, but I'll try. <laughs> oh, you can do it. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do it. <laughs> so I'm at your disposal, guys. Fire away. <laughs> Matt, as I was saying, you and I score high on the modesty scale, so we're going to get right into it. We've known each other decades, and we know all the kind of traditional war stories in venture about the investments that are on the consumer side, right? When you invest in Facebook or Zoom, everybody else talks about that. Consumer gets all, the, all of the press. But you and I have invested in some really deep, dark tech going way back. And DCVC is really into categories that nobody invests in, like nuclear reactors. So talk to me about how you started to really focus these last 15 years on being a core tech investor going into categories that scare the crap out of everybody else. Sure. So, you know, the headline for DCVC is that we apply deep tech to solve gigantic problems in trillion dollar industries in a CapEx and OpEx efficient fashion. And that's really key. Um, one of the the bitter lessons from a, a, a long life uh, doing this is that capital formation is really important and companies have to show a clear and robust path to profitability or at least a sexy accretive acquisition 
or we're not making money for our LPs. And the save the world part of our business is a very pleasing and very important emergent property of doing the right thing by our LPs. How do we get here? Well, you know, my wife likes to say that our firm is kids who watch too much Star Trek and we're never told that it wasn't a documentary. <laughs> and, and then we're and then we're handed many billions of dollars with no real adult supervision. So I asked my wife to leave that last part out when, uh, <laughs> when, when, we're, in, when we're in company. But the fact is, I and my co-founders and, and everybody on our team has been pursuing this dream of capital-efficient transformation of innovation-resistant industries for you know their entire careers, depending on how long they've been at it. I did my first deep, dark tech investments as a VC in, in 1993 and in 1994. Um, one was a phenomenal hardware-software combination that magically made any power plant 20 to 30% more efficient, hmm. from nuclear to dispatch, gas burners, to even hydroelectric, um, and penetrated some customers, got some big wins, and was greeted with a collective yawn by a heavily regulated industry hmm. that said, you know, we don't right. care. The other one was a chip that in 1994 could transmit 10 megabits of data quasi non-line of sight for 10 kilometers and delivered just for, you know, you know what's in giggles, precise location to a centimeter and a cubic kilometer. Hmm. And it was done and it worked. And you can guess what happened to that one. So I, I started out in deep tech stubbing my toe twice and... Uh, I think what what I learned was that you have to have an unambiguously clear path to return. And as wonderful as these amazing and sometimes crazy entrepreneurs are, you have to have partners in the entrepreneurs who are willing to embrace aggressive professional management to get the kind of outcomes that that our LPs demand. Um, Paul and I were in a company together called Flashsoft which is a truly deep tech company. It's, it's fundamental to pretty much all of modern compute at this point. It makes flash memory useful for cloud compute and big demanding applications. Uh, and because we had a good but not great management team, it was what, Paul, a, a 50X or a 70X hmm. instead of a, a 500X? That's right. Yeah, it got bought and it got bought because you were probably in a spot where you had tapped out how far the company could go as currently configured. And we were happy that it sold at that mm. point because they didn't up-level to the point to make it to the next stop on the board. Hmm. Yep. Lessons learned along the way. That's that's why the beard is gray. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Matt, you, you referred to the fact that, you know, these are long-term bets. How do you get confident about business models and commercial opportunity that far into the future? Whether it's, nuclear power, fission or fusion, or literally uh, rocket science, all demand different kinds of skills and, and perspective to evaluate. We sort of look for a flywheel in everything that we, we invest in. And the flywheel looks like some kind of 
algorithmic advantage. Today, it's popular to call that AI. It could be amazing signal processing. It could be control systems breakthrough or whatever. We want to see that algorithmic advantage apply to some set of proprietary data and insights that the founding team has access to that nobody else in the world understands or really gets and is not expensive to acquire. So, so you look for a compounding advantage to information. So accelerating over time, basically that's what exactly. Yeah. But here's the trick. We want to see that algorithm apply to that data to produce a real world result in difficult compute. So that mm -hmm. means it could be a chip that has to, you know, fit inside a medical diagnostic instrument. Nobody's ever shrunk something to that scale before, or it could be data center scale compute, but it has to work in one data center instead of 40. Mm. And we want to see a real world result, whether that real world result is a life-saving genetic sequence that gets printed on a piece of paper and handed to a doctor, or whether it's a rocket going into space or a nuclear reactor managing to safely burn waste for a hundred years. We want to see that. And the real world result feeds back into the algorithmic advantage. And the company gets more CapEx and more OpEx efficient has more control of its margins, longer runway, is able to deal with the vicissitudes of, you know, our world and venture, literally every time that flywheel spins. In order to do this, to your question, you gotta be nerds. I mean, the other thing, <laughs> the other thing, the other thing my wife says about our shop is we are by the nerds for the nerds so that the nerds shall not perish from the earth. We are we are boring. We are not cool kids. We are we don't collect Ferraris. We don't go hella skiing in Chile. We're not summering on yachts. We're doing and managing our portfolio over the summer. And, you know, we're boring at parties because we want to talk about the latest proceedings of the ACM or nature or science or something like that. But it's hard to lie to us. And when our companies really need us, we're there for them. I think you're getting at something very, very important. And yeah, I can testify by how you look on this podcast. You have not been outside too often this summer. Uh, <laughs> no. I'm sure of that, Matt. No. And those cocktail parties must be in the basement at your house. So I, I get it. Exactly. But what you're saying is so true. You know, if you're looking at a new consumer lick, for lack of a better word, everybody has an instinct on it. When you're looking at a new design for a fusion reactor, there aren't going to be many people who have a feel for if that is going to work or not. So talk to us a little bit, Matt. What is that diligence process like for the nerds, with the nerds, to figure out that of the 10 new nuclear designs, this is the one that you want to back? I call our, our overall approach in our, our sector a little facetiously heroic cowardice or, or cowardly heroics. Because to your point, Paul, folks that do the kind of, you know, lightweight enterprise stuff or, or pick the one of 73 crypto companies all flogging the, the same claim is amazing. The reason I say uh, use the term, you know, uh, cowardly heroics or heroic cowardice is that's that's terrifying. I, I don't <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I've been randomly lucky a few times investing with friends in in consumer companies like zoom but we only understand stuff that delivers a life or death benefit 
So Paul, to your question, we start with that. Is this thing, the thing that we're looking at, going to absolutely fundamentally permanently change the economics of a trillion dollar market in a way that global 1000 companies or nation states cannot say no to. So huge risk at the beginning, right? On, on, on really getting market fit. Can the technology really scale? But you're not investing a lot of money, which again gets to the sort of, you know, cowardly or cheating part. So a little bit of money to solve massive risk. And then if it works, you're locked in. So, you know, our company, Abcelera, which delivered the first and still only effective monoclonal antibody that literally cures most cases of COVID. You know, something on the order of a million people alive today that would be otherwise dead without this thing. And so our companies for us, for, for new tranches of capital formation and for our LPs, ideally when they go public, you know, to, to misuse a Wall Street term are lower VIX. They're lower volatility. They take a little longer. They're not glamorous. But when they work, they really are delivering massive life and death benefits. They are hard to disrupt. They have stable revenue. And whatever the heck the market happens to be doing in the short term, you know, to use the Buffett analogy, they win in the weighing machine race, even if they're not that cool in the, in the voting machine race. So the diligence is all about how are we successful in that journey? You know, I have something on the order of 70 patents and a degree in physics from an Ivy League university. And even saying that makes me sound like an arrogant dick. <laughs> um, but I say that because I'm the dumbest person in the partnership. <laughs> there are a lot of super smart people and a huge network that we've cultivated across the better part of 20 years now that are way smarter than me that can dive in and beat the crap out of those key elements. That's what gets the the first check. And Matt, by the way, I got to jump in on this real quick because uh, as much as I'm quick to rip on you, I got to be quick to compliment you too. You say you're not the smartest guy there, but I guarantee you have the best instincts because there really is, as much as you get that report on diligence, there is still an instinctual part about it has to happen, as my partner Rich Melman likes to say. And I think your instincts are second to none. So talk to me about how you put your instincts back into this decision process, because I know it can't all just be on the diligence. Somebody at some point like you's got to say, yep, that's right. We're, we're all friends here with a lot of battle scars. The perpetual Scylla and Charbitis, the, the perpetual, you know, two terrors and a punch in the face uh, <laughs> kind, of, hard place. kind of decision <laughs> uh, uh, process is, is this and this gets your, your question about instinct, how much weight do you apply to pattern matching? Because everybody likes to talk about Facebook or Airbnb, waka, 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 put some guys on mattresses, going to be great. Um, uh, everybody likes to talk about those things as pattern-breaking companies. But the fact is, for every triumph that a major Sandhill firm likes to put on its website or, or promote in its lobby, there are 10,000 corpses with the exact same ID, uh, idea 
pardon me, buried in unmarked graves behind <laughs> the fancy sandhill uh, facade. And, you know, the failures are fractal. So when you don't pattern match, when you don't say, well, you know, the last seven <laughs> hyper arrogant 21 year olds with Dunning-Kruger syndrome that I invested in crash their companies. I wonder if I should stop doing that. When, when you don't pattern match, statistically, you are lighting your LP's money on fire and burying it in those unmarked graves. If you pattern match too much, you ignore potential home runs that are, that are pattern breaking. And, and so really, Paul, your, you know, your reference to instinct is, you know, applying all of the bitter lessons, all of the pattern matching, all of the learning of however long your career is to kind of a version of you that's the Israeli 10th man, that's the adversary going, I think you're full of shit. <laughs> I think you're pattern matching too much. All I can say is there's probably... There's probably a Gaussian for for VC outcomes. And and I would say, you know, the Gaussian is the point where you have enough experience to actually stop doing stupid things. And the x-axis is kind of time, but I'm in my early 50s now. When I'm when I'm in my mid-70s, notwithstanding whatever nootropics, uh, you know, uh, some other VCs uh, going to cook up, <laughs> Consumer Deal is going to cook up for me, I, I may be too set in my ways. And that's also why, you know, we're not touching on it today, but firm duration and generational transitions and making sure that your brand, your, your, your legacy doesn't end up a dusty, lonely plaque in some corner of Palo Alto in a one room office, that's, that's also tough. And you better be training that younger generation and imparting your wisdom and, and lifting them up and promoting them and accelerating them so that you don't end up there. And by the way, you also have to accept to your question, Paul, about, about, you know, gut instinct, your gut instinct is shaped by the people around you. So if you're a megalomaniacal jerk, you go around patting your team on the head going, well, that's adorable, but clearly, <laughs> you know, due to my investment in XYZ, watch me commit the same cardinal sin of every, every, I'm going to confuse wealth with wisdom. Oh, wait, that, you know, it, it doesn't work for flamboyant billionaires. And it doesn't work for VCs. So that that my point about having an internal dialogue where you kind of red team yourself also applies to how you interact with your team. You have to empower your team to tell you you're full of shit or you live in kind of a hermetically sealed box where you make a lot of mistakes. I was going to ask you a question. I'm going to turn it into a statement, though, because, you know, at Kleiner, we did a lot of deep tech investing. We also did a lot of consumer investing. We did a lot of biotech investing. And I was going to ask you, uh, the question was going to be, why why not expand yourself into a multi-thematic firm? And and listening to you, I, I sort of answered my own question, and maybe you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong, but at Kleiner, part of the problem was we had deep tech people and we had consumer people all trying to come to decisions around a deep tech investment or a consumer investment. 
And, and frankly, it wasn't just about domain expertise. It was about kind of perspective and thought process and analytics that, that made them sort of oil and water when you came to making decisions. And instead of getting better decisions, you almost regressed to the, to the median every time because it became political, right? Yep. It became this, this lowercase political decision because I don't know about their deal, but I need them to support my deal. Yep. So I'll kind Long of rolling. say yes, sir. Right, right. So, so help me. So, am I on the right track here? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely on the right track. I mean, we have a very thriving biotech practice, but it is a deep tech centric biotech practice that looks for that flywheel that needs an algorithmic advantage. It's not throwing darts against the board, going, "I'm a handsome doctor, <laughs> therefore the molecule that I pick will save lives." <laughs> I'd like another seven hundred million dollars to do that, please. Right? That again, that works for some folks, and I am in awe of them. But you know, my my gentle reductionist mockery, notwithstanding, that kind of that kind of approach is terrifying to me. So, to your point, Randy, there is a core thematic and philosophical and operational and diligence approach across everything that we touch. And it doesn't apply to consumer. On the one hand, whether it's age or, or gender or racial origin, we think the VC industry has been throwing away, essentially, you know, let's call it what it is, redlining amazing amounts of human talent and entrepreneurial capacity that they, they, they shouldn't have. Um, one of our younger partners, Ali Tomasab, actually wrote a book called Super Founders, we analyzed a ton of data on, on great entrepreneurial outcomes and actually statistically older founders, people in their mid thirties to early forties have better outcomes than the stereotypical 21 year old genius. So all, all that being said, you know, the data that you can analyze being as inclusive and open-minded as possible, I still would have no idea how to make some of the consumer investments that 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 Paul has even stuff that's quasi you know algorithmic like bullpen's uh, recent big win braze you know that just looks like a tangled chain of eyeballs <laughs> if it's a way you know on Wednesday we're gonna sh you know we're gonna uplift your penetration of the quad mark least squares. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be crypto in there yeah, somewhere. It's, I mean, I somewhere. Like, did, did they did they say it was a Kai analysis or the lead sales guy on the ad team was from Sigma Kai? You know, went to Lehigh. I, I don't know. Oh my but, God, Matt's getting Matt. You're getting some good references in there. But, but let me ask you one question, real quick. Sure, Matt. sure. Brother. Just just in reference to your your voting mechanism. So. Run me through, how many verticals do you consider yourself in? And I'm sure you'll go into a vertical you've never seen before because you're just crazy enough to. But do the biotech people, quote, vote on the nuclear reactor deals? Uh, how are you set up in that regard? Because, again, having the direct-to-consumer person opine on the nuclear reactor, we know that that's a bad idea. But does everything get centralized, or do you kind of have SWAT teams in each of your verticals? And if so, how do you decide when to add a vertical? We have SWAT teams in, in each vertical generally, but with a lot of overlap because we want people cross-trained. 
we want Bo Jackson that doesn't just look good, but actually can play baseball. Um, and, uh, or, you know, we want an A-Rod that can slam dunk. Um, and again, there's enough overlap and core discipline in the various areas that we do that, that we, we get that. And it keeps, it keeps people happy. They get intellectual diversity. They, they get to exercise their passions across uh, a variety of deals. Biotech is slightly more independent than, than quote unquote uh, flagship. There's an, another set of world-class managing partners in that franchise because at the end of the day, knowing how to massage a life-saving therapy through the FDA jaws of death is a superpower that is only honed by doing a lot of the same thing across, you know, 15 or, or 20 years. Um, and so calling the ball on, you know, whether to do that and, you know, how much more capital to add is something that we really empower that, that team to do. The senior partners at, at our firm, including me, sit on the investment committee for that because, again, it's a very shared discipline, shared, shared approach. But when somebody believes in something uh, on, on the biotech side, you know, whether it's our company Orca that has put evidence on the table that they're able to cure almost every single blood cancer and reduce transplant, bone marrow transplant fatalities to, to almost zero uh, in most cases, that kind of insight really requires, you know, true biotech ninjas. And I only play one on TV. <laughs> Let me ask you a question about capitalization because of the long-term nature of this. How big are your funds? How much do you hold in reserve for investing and protecting your investment through air gaps over the course of what could be a decade or more in the in the harvesting of these businesses? And and where do you find the investors, the LPs, who share that vision? I, I think first and foremost, we learned that we had to be reasonably beefy, not billions and billions, but that we needed kind of six, seven, 800 million, you know, our median uh, is around 750 million because sometimes you have to double down on stuff that you believe in because you have perfect legal insider information that is both a blessing and a curse, right? Perhaps when others don't, a company will be successful, but also you can't provide them with that same level of insight. It's almost as if there's an invisible SEC saying, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'd love for this later stage investor to have perfect information on the company, but the only way that it's possible is for them to have been in it for five years already. And so without the ability to kind of occasionally grease the wheels of capital formation, and by the way, even for the vast majority of our deals, which are third-party led and, and do pretty fine um, in, in their capital formation journeys, you want to double down on your winners. That's, that's an eternal verity. You know, the LPs that believe in this are a, a healthy mix of Ivy Leagues and giant pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and some, some very large family offices. Uh, I will say it's not easy, e even with many successful funds. We run into people 
who say things that we don't understand. I think even the mightiest venture firms on the planet do get occasional no's. The weird ones are when somebody like a research university hmm. says, well, you know, we're, we're making all of the, the monies that we need. It's, it's very excellent. Um, <laughs> yes, my, my shelter's buttoned up to here. I'm so much better than you are. Pitiful little VC. I'm, I'm not telling you the university wasn't in Germany. I'm just, uh, I, I'm just. <laughs> no, I, I realize that was I'm a disguise. Ju I'm, just expressing, <laughs> I'm just expressing my bitterness by making them sound like Dieter from, uh, uh, <clears throat> from Saturday Night Live. But, you know, it, it was, it was for a research university essentially saying we need to make money, right? And a transient 11-bagger fund, you know, full credit to the thing they were considering is better than the four or five-bagger that we poor country cousins were, were, were discussing at the time. And yet that money is going to support science and engineering that needs to be commercialized by VCs like us, or there is literally no point in having them have a, a research university. So I asked, I asked the slightly impertinent question, which is, are you, are you going to turn the entire university into sort of theater studies and, you know, art history? Because otherwise the flywheel doesn't work, right? The things, you know, even, lightweight enterprise and the lower end of crypto stuff require the kind of compute and algorithms that your, your university has developed. If you don't fund innovation, there's literally no purpose to your university existing. And the response was, where's that? By the time that is a problem, I, I will be long dead. So there. Uh, <laughs> so, so not look, not every, uh, not every LP, uh, not every LP wants to save the world, be able to look their spouse and their children in the eye and make four or five X at the same time. Some would rather make 11 X and see it go to zero, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, let me ask a question about current market condition. You've done a great job building that LP base. Uh, very impressed that you've gotten the groups you have for, for stuff that is as difficult to fund as it is. When I think about DCVC, I know how capital efficient you've been, and I know that you have the balls to double down on your winners before the data is there. But talk to us about what the downstream financing risks are going to look like for some of your stuff that has high capex. It's one of the things I worry about, right? You're going to have some stuff that has undeniable results, and the rest of the market sits here and goes, ah, that's just too much money right now because, because. Any thoughts on what this is going to look like forward going in this kind of different yeah, market condition. I, I have a great, I have a great example. Um, so we were the seed investors and then led the A and doubled down uh, all the way up to and including the pre-IPO round for a company called Embark that is now public. I'm not on the board at this point. I have no material, non-public information, but I do know what the company has done so I can extrapolate their, their velocity and their success. This is a company on less than $100 million that delivered autonomous trucking results that pretty much every would-be participant in the market, including one that soaked up billions from our mutual friend, uh, Mark Pincus, 
have not demonstrated. So Embark has shown trucks that can navigate through snowstorms and rainstorms across every highway pretty much in the United States through construction zones at night with an incredibly high degree of safety. In fact, their National Highway Transportation Safety Administration record is perfect. And so they're cost effective. They are way ahead of their peers. Um, so despite that, the company is trading at, you know, something like a 250 or $300 million valuation. And one of their peers is trading higher. And obviously investors are more comfortable with what, you know, some of the shiny object folks are doing. But they got their money. Embark got its money. They have every single dollar right. they need to be taking yep. their major shipping partners, which they have quietly acquired, and be delivering autonomous freight profitably for their customers, and they don't need more money. So am I am I bummed that you know I have a a, a you know disappointing mark to market? Um, sure. Am I happy that I still hold something that is going to, in my belief, crush the posers in the market? You bet. Paul, that's the kind of journey. Get these companies the money that they need and and they will annihilate the posers in the end. In, re in reference to Embark, you touched on a topic which I've been thinking about a lot and you probably have as well, which is the SPAC environment we just came out of. You know, as I looked at its application to consumer businesses, it looked like a disaster to me because those companies are going to be measured very yep. quickly. But it looked like a really good opportunity for deep tech companies with long horizons yep. who didn't yes. care about their near-term stock prices, who weren't going to yes. be measured by profitability in the, time, in the relevant time frame, but needed the capital in the right. bank to be able to make the long-term investment. And Embark sounds like just like that. Is that the way you were looking at SPACs? Uh, absolutely. If, well? I, if I could get... You know, if we could get one of our companies years of runway, it, during which period, again, they were going to annihilate the posers because we knew the tech worked, it scaled, customers were ecstatic, right? You just needed the capital to sustain scale. SPACs were an ideal tool. And, you know, a regulatory regime that has made SPACs the villain while it was asleep at the switch as Wells Fargo fleeced tens of millions of customers, five different hedge funds, including Bill Huang's, basically committed mini Bernie Madoffs. Some of our friends on Wall Street continue to flog stuff with the quality of, of 2007, you know, collateralized mortgage instruments. That apparently is all fine, but God forbid... America's technological future be prosperous and secure. Well, I get it. I think, I mean, I think the issue is the broad application. I mean, SPACs have always been around. And I thought, and I thought, frankly, they emerged as a really great tool for just what we've been talking about, which is long-term investment where you could ignore the near-term stock price for the capital in the bank to make those investments for three, five, 10 years out, if that's what you needed to do. But the problem was its application to all of these high-flying, as you point out, sort of chest-thumping consumer and other companies who are going to be measured in a quarter or two 
and weren't going to live up. And that was a disaster. And so, you know, I, I hope the SPACs continue as a resource, capital resource for real deep tech long term vision. I do want to ask you a little bit about you're you're a fascinating guy to ask about where the ball is going. Obviously, you're way in front of it to begin with. But what are some things on the horizon that you're excited about? Not stuff that's in the portfolio, but stuff that's just at the cutting edge where you know that entrepreneur is going to come into your office maybe by the end of this year, maybe next year. What are some of those categories or themes? I'd say that we're, we're looking at a global environment of, of both incredible promise and incredible peril. You know, th this, this covers, covers the gamut. Of, of things, you know, you don't have to be ideological about, you know, climate change. You don't have to necessarily ha have an I heart Al Gore t-shirt to appreciate that the climate is getting crazier and hotter both at the same time, right? Even for the most staunch business centric you know, never given a dollar to Greenpeace kind of uh, global executives, there's terrifying risk for them when container ships are getting clocked by rogue waves that didn't used to be on, you know, safe shipping lanes anymore and lose lose 10 to 15% of, of their cargo or, you know, off the decks. So the prediction and the resilient response and ideally the extinction of risk around these forcing functions is going to be important. And then the exact same set of constraints applies to human craziness. So, you know, we're seeing more violence in even, you know, mature, presumably sober Western societies, you, you know, US, Europe, you know, you name it, we're seeing more political division. We're seeing, so, you know, we've invested in companies like Evolve, which detects bombs, guns, and knives at, at walking speed with, with great accuracy and has been transformative for, for a lot of, you know, both um, uh, uh, government and, and civilian venues. So I would say, you know, asymptotic physical risk is, um, uh, you know, from craziness, <laughs> craziness, craziness <laughs> of the environment around you, mother nature going crazy and people going crazy it is a, I think a dramatically underinvested area. Hmm. Matt, we're running out of time. I want to make sure that Commissar gets chance for one more question though. This has been wonderful. Randy, over to you. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't let you go without. We've talked a lot about technology and the future. Let's talk about people here, both the people you've invested in and your team. Sort of in a little lightning round thing. What have you learned? What's the What's the most important lessons you'd like the audience? to Wow, know? the number one thing for both entrepreneurs and VCs in team building is is hire people smarter than you are. I'm really not being facetious here. Over the long term, in, in a company and in a VC firm, your core objective is to replace yourself. And along the arc right. of your right. along the arc of your replacement success, if everybody is fair to everybody else, and it is possible for everybody to be fair to everybody else, uh, even in these 
aggressively capitalist uh, um, milieus, you make money as your replacement comes into the fullness of their replacementhood. Um, and so every CEO, CTO, technical founder, product leader, and every VC should be should be thinking that way. And I, and I think the kind of subhead on that lesson is learning to trust the people that you're training up to replace you someday and being introspective enough to admit either that you're wrong in the moment, which is ideal, or to admit when you're wrong. The second lesson that I would say that I've learned about people is the emotional makeup of, of entrepreneurs is their, their worldview, who they are, is relatively fixed, almost regardless of age. I mean, I've seen young people, you know, grow and, 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 and do remarkable things that, you know, far exceeded their, their initial skill set and I think that's that's great but you know to come back to embark briefly the the young CEO of embark has a degree of management skill and maturity that exceeds mine today <laughs> right this is somebody who is literally born to be a technical CEO but there are two kind of cardinal sins one is you see somebody with great technology but <clears throat> the emotional resilience or the gumption or the leadership drive is a B plus or an A minus instead of an A plus. And you say, oh, that can be fixed or we're going to help. Or what you really end up doing is, you know, my, my first VC mentor used this phrase, you're putting your arms through their suit jacket <laughs> and kind of, you know, <laughs> marching, <laughs> marching them towards <laughs> your vision. And even if they tolerate it, they resent it, it, it's it's a bad investment, it's bad for them, it's bad for you. These things end up being, you know, time and money sinks almost, you know, inevitably. Um, and on the flip side, when you get a brilliant technical entrepreneur with bad Dunning-Kruger, where Every single conversation is proving the existence of the universe from scratch. You don't want a three slide presentation that says F you invest because I'm smart. <laughs> that, that will not have a yeah. good outcome. Why? Well, because of this, yeah. this, and this. Why? Well, 50 years of data clearly shows this. Well, why? Um, that also is going to end up being a bad, uh, uh, you know, yeah. a bad outcome. I guess you could say this is kind of a spectrum, which is in, in building your organizations as a VC and entrepreneur, trust and grace are incredibly important. And on the other hand, when you find people that seem resistant or resentful of mutual trust, and grace you can't run away fast enough those are good really good lessons super good lessons i mean my 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 sense is that particularly young entrepreneurs feel they need to prove they're the smartest guy in the room all the time young vcs do the same and with experience you begin to look for the wisest guy in the room 
And that's a very different, that's a very different mindset. That's a very different approach. And it is very powerful. It is often, it is also often unobservable unless you're looking for it. Yes, uh, Otko, it is a real pleasure to have you on here. On behalf of me and Randy and the whole Lunchpail VC group, this has been a truly mind-expanding discussion on what it's like to invest in deep tech. We can't thank Mr. Otko of DCVC enough. Matt, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Lunchpail VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time.